As you sit, you might want to keep your finger on page 11, the Matthew passage, as well as the Isaiah 61 passage, which is on page uh, 4, 6, and 7, I believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may the beauty of Jesus Christ be revealed to all of us, Lord, I pray. And may we know you as our perfect and heavenly Father. In your Son's holy name we pray. Amen. So last Sunday after church, um, my wife and I, Brooke, went to the Clouds apartment and we picked up a mini crib from them, which they've generously donated to us. And if you recall, it was a really blisteringly hot day. So it wasn't too bad getting the crib into our car, but it was pretty bad navigating the traffic uh, back to Queens. And our car doesn't have any air conditioning in it. So it's quite hot. Uh, At the end of that trip, my back was sweating. My shirt was stuck uh, to the small of my back. Uh, I was pretty much ready to just go into air conditioning and relax. Of course, I had to take the crib My wife is very pregnant, so uh, she can't really help me. Uh, So I took the crib uh, down our stairs, if you've ever been to our house, they're pretty narrow stairs. And as often is the case, I'm banging it against the wall a little bit, scraping my knuckles a little. I was just a little frustrated, in other words, with the whole process. Um, And finally, it was done. I went up to my room, ready to relax, lay down, have a nice beverage, and chill out. And so I took my keys out of my pocket, took my phone, put it on the shelf, and of course I missed the shelf, and the phone goes straight to the ground and shatters. And the touchscreen won't even work, it's unusable, and I thought in that moment, I'm not proud of it, but I did think, Lord, that's just like you. You're never letting me kind of be too comfortable. Kind of kicking me when I'm down. Again, I'm not proud of it. But this question of who God really is, what he really is like, I think has a tendency to crop up from time to time, sometimes when you least expect it. And sometimes it's very trivial, uh, the event that kind of inspired those thoughts, as in my case. But I'm aware that whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, whether you aren't following Jesus at all, these question about who God is comes up, especially when we look at a passage like the Matthew 8 passage today, which is about healing. If you've ever stood at the bedside of someone who is sick and suffering, if you've ever been one of those long vigils through the night in the hospital, at the the hospital bed for someone who is maybe about to die, if you've ever bowed your head graveside for a dearly loved one who's been put into the grave, you'll know how pressing that question can be. That is, who is God? And I think more fundamentally in that is the question, is he good? I'd like to say that God is not afraid of these questions, and he's not indifferent to our pain. And in fact, one of those, uh, the many possible answers he gives us to these things can be so simple that it can sometimes hardly seem like an answer at all. It's what Jesus said to Andrew when they meet in the first chapter of John. It's also what Philip says to Nathaniel in his skepticism that anything good can come from Nazareth. It's the simple phrase, come and see. So over the next few weeks, starting today, it's exactly what we will be doing. 
We'll be gazing intently into the New Testament stories about Jesus. And why Jesus? Well, St. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says that if we really want to see God, then we need to look to his Son. He writes, he is the image, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if we want to know what God is like, Scripture teaches us our primary task is to look at Jesus. So my prayer is that as we do that over the next few weeks, as we do that today, as we look to Jesus, we might come and see, and see if, in fact, there is something we can say about God with conviction, perhaps even with awe, with beauty, with gratitude, with love about who this God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what can be said about Jesus from today's passage in Matthew 8? Well, the first thing that can be said, and even in the midst of our pain and questions and perhaps even skepticism, and perhaps especially in the midst of those, we can say that Jesus is in the business of healing, as it were. And there are three things in particular that this passage illuminates for us about that healing. One, Jesus is willing and able to heal. Two, Jesus' healing is for all people who take him at his word. Three, Jesus' healing is costly. So Jesus is willing and able to heal. Uh, Look down to verse 1. The scripture says, When he, that is Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So the mountain here that Jesus is coming down from is where he's just been giving his sermon on the mount. If you've been with us for the past nine months or so, we've been going through that sermon in the, uh, each Sunday, and we're kind of done with that as, in a sense. But in that sermon, if you'll recall, we find the core teaching that Jesus gave on what it means to follow him. And so now here, descending from the mountain, Jesus is immediately confronted with the gritty, crowded, unlovely reality of pressing human need. The first encounter is with this leper. From our point of view today, this leper's life would have been almost unimaginably awful. According to the Mosaic Law, which is, of course, at the heart of the Jewish religion and communal life at that time and in that culture, leprosy rendered a person ceremonially unclean. That is, this leper is unable to participate in the very thing which is at the center of the Jewish community and nation. That is, the religious ritual life of worship. Leviticus 13 says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so what does Jesus do meeting this leper? Well, look to verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. There are a number of striking things here. But I think to really feel the force of what Jesus has done, especially in the culture and the context of that time, uh, we should dig a little deeper. The first thing that strikes us is that Jesus touches the man. It's easy for us to overlook this. But it is entirely possible that this man has never been touched since his diagnosis. 
that this might be the first touch, the first human touch he has received from anyone. Consider the tragedy of being unclean in that society. You were not just unclean, excluded from the religious and social life of the nation, but you were also a contaminant. Everything and everyone you touched became unclean too. Your touch defiled. And so when Jesus touches this man, he was doing something you really were not supposed to be doing. Ordinarily speaking, touching this man would have made Jesus unclean. He would have had to gone through a kind of a, a purification process, follow certain prescribed rituals in order to be clean again, in order to participate in the worship of Israel. But of course here, the emphasis is that it's Jesus' power to cleanse that is the catching one here. It is his touch which touches what is defiled, and he is not himself defiled, but makes clean. And as remarkable as this miracle is, as remarkable as the healing of this leper's body is, we should also consider that in this healing, it's a healing that is also a restoration. It's a man restored both socially and religiously to his community. And to all of this, Jesus says, I will. Those two tiny words in verse 3 are worth meditating on a little bit longer, I think. What can we learn exactly from these small words, I will? From what is it that Jesus wills precisely? That is, what is his desire? What does he intend? What is his design? To fully answer that, we have to look back to Luke 4, which is at, comes at the very outset of Jesus' public ministry. Before the events of t- uh, today's passage in Matthew, before even the Sermon on the Mount has taken place, Jesus stands up in his synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he makes this incredible declaration. Ever since, it's been understood as a sort of mission statement of sorts for Jesus, of that very thing which we might consider to be at the core of his will and his desire. He takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, which we read earlier. It's on page 4, 6, and 7 in your bulletin. Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says to everyone present, it's almost like a mic drop moment. He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What on earth could he mean? Well, to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here, we should understand in particular the last thing he says, which is, he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Some translations render it the year of the Lord's good pleasure. What exactly then is this year of God's pleasure, this year in which God delights? Well, it's a reference to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. So what is the year of Jubilee? Stick with me. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus, and basically every seven years, the Israelites observed a sabbatical year. That is, a year when the land itself rested completely. You weren't allowed to till it, you weren't allowed to farm it, you were to let the land rest. But every seven sabbatical years, that is every 49 years, they celebrated the 50th year as a year of jubilee. This is a year when all slaves were released. 
When land that had been taken away from your family for whatever reason, maybe you owed a debt and you had to pay with the land, whatever reason that you had, that your land was taken from you or your family's land was taken from you, the land was returned to its original owners and all debts were canceled. It was a year of restoration and return, but it was also a year of new beginnings, of fresh starts. So if you think about it, I mean, that's one of the most radical things I've ever heard about uh, how a society should operate. Everything is returned, in a sense. Everything is restored every 50 years. So when Jesus stands up in the synagogue, in the words of one preacher, this is what Jesus is saying. I am coming into the world to undo what sin and Satan have done. Look at Isaiah 61. What does sin do? Sin impoverishes. Sin breaks hearts. Sin enslaves. It captivates. It imprisons. It binds. But Jesus says, I have come to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to those who are bound and in captivity, to open prison doors, to give sight to the blind. I have come to proclaim the acceptable year of God's favor. If you're enslaved with sin, Jesus is saying, God is going to set you free. If you've been disenfranchised by wickedness, by evil, by your own wrong choices, or that which others have inflicted upon you by their wills, I am going to return to you what the enemy has thieved. I'm going to cancel out all your debts, which you owe to God because of your sin and law-breaking. I am going to wipe the slate clean. Is that not good news? For me, it is. And so when the leper says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, straight away Jesus answers, I will. I am willing. And so when we ask this question of what is God like? Is he good? Here is our answer. The God of the Bible is a God who delights, whose very will is to set free, to cancel debts, to restore. And not only is he willing, he is able. If you read the rest of the gospel, you will see that all the things we had hoped to see in this year of the Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee, we actually do see in the life of Christ. This is the report that uh, Jesus gives John's disciples to go tell John. The blind receive sight. The crippled walk again. The demon-possessed are released from their captivity. Withered hands are restored. The signs of the kingdom of God are unleashed in power in liberation, in the undoing and reversal and restoration that is at the heart of what God wills for you, for me, for their world. And really, in this encounter with this leper, we see the gospel then in a nutshell. Both the willingness and the power of Jesus Christ to undo the ravages of sin and death and by his word in touch to make clean. Notice that it is from his word, his touch that emanates the goodness which reshapes and transforms all that is unlovely and defiled. So it's not that Jesus is defiled by touching this leper, but he makes clean. It is his word and touch which does so, almost as though it manifests, creates, makes reality. It enacts, it's the sign and the presence of the year of the Lord's favor. And in all this, he says, I will, I am willing, and I am able. And as marvelous as all this is, this miraculous healing of the leper, 
There's also another miracle in this passage. I don't know if you caught it. It's a miracle that Jesus himself marvels at. So whenever Jesus marvels at something, I don't know about you, but I want to be sure that I see what he's looking at and marvel at it also. So what is it that he marvels at? And what does this tell us about him? Well, not only is Jesus willing and able to heal, Jesus' healing is for all people who take him at his word. Look at what Jesus marvels at in verse 10. The remarkable thing Jesus marvels at is the centurion's faith. Look at the end of verse 10. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now at this point I think there's sometimes some confusion about what faith actually is. It's very easy for some of us to imagine faith as some kind of muscle, as something we have to work at. So that if we try really, really hard, if we only believe fervently enough, then maybe something will happen. Maybe God will see our faith and respond. But notice the faith that Jesus marvels at here. The centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion's response combines both humility about his status before the Lord, this Jesus who is Lord of the universe, but it also shows a profound and simple willingness to simply take Jesus at his word. It's striking to me how similar the centurion's response is to Mary's when the angel Gabriel appears to her with the news that she will bear the very Son of God. What does Mary say? May it be to me, she says, according to your word. I think it's worth meditating on the fact that faith in the Bible is often associated with hearing and with eating. Paul says it quite literally in Romans 10 that faith is by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And again, in Galatians 3, Paul contrasts what he calls the works of the law against something he calls hearing with faith. The foundational example, Paul goes on to say, of this kind of faith with hearing, hearing with faith, I should say, is Abraham, who believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And I think it's remarkable that faith is bound up here with something so apparently passive as hearing. I mean, think about what you do when you hear something. You don't actually do very much at all. Sound waves pretty much enter your ear if everything's working properly, pretty much without any conscious action on your part. Of course, you can clap your hands over your ears, can drown out one sound with other sounds, but to hear something really generally means listening. Similarly, with uh, metaphors in the Bible around faith and eating, whether by manna in the desert the feeding of the 5,000, or the bread and wine instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper, in which we will celebrate uh, shortly, it's the giftedness of the food given, the greatness and wonder of the outpouring that is the focus. Not anything we do or add to it. When Jesus says, take, eat to his disciples, when we rehearse those words, each communion service, he intends us to do very simply what he says. And the wonderful and strange thing to me, and even a little bit frightening thing to me about food, is if you think about it, if you accept and eat something, it enters into you, 
It goes deeply inside you into a place you can't really see. And in fact, it becomes a part of your very body, your very being. Your mouth is one of the very few places on your body, not sealed up by skin. It's one of the few places where your insides, so to speak, are exposed to the open air. And it's no surprise then that we associate our mouths, this part of our body, with intimacy. That sharing food, and not to mention kissing, has been understood as a sign of closeness, as a sign of relationship, fellowship, and love. For in both hearing and eating, note the prime thing that is happening, the emphasis in the Bible is on the receiving. I love this verse from Psalm 81. So what the Lord says to Israel, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So in today's Matthew passage, Jesus marvels at this centurion's faith because the centurion takes him at his word. And in so doing, he exhibits this very sort of receiving that I've just been talking about. And this is very important. Notice that Jesus goes on to indicate that it is this kind of faith which is the distinguishing mark of his people. Look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In the context of this time, this is an astonishing thing to say. Because what Jesus is saying is that, in fact, what distinguishes the people of God, what is their basis for being the people of God, is not ethnicity, is not the Jewish faith or identity, but rather it is the faith that takes Jesus at his word. Consider that he is saying this in response to a Roman centurion. This is a man who is a member of the oppressor class for the Jews at the time. A man whose delegated authority at the time rested in part on brutal and horrific violence. Whose presence was a constant and painful reminder to the Jewish people of their oppression. And furthermore, uh, in the parallel passage to this in Luke 7, Jesus says what he says in earshot of the Jewish leaders of the time. The words here are really explosive. Jesus is saying that his people are not based on some ethnic uh, lineage, but on faith. And all this is very good news for us, who in this room are not of a Jewish background, and who would be considered Gentiles, in many ways excluded out of the spiritual life of the covenant nation of Israel. The many who come from the east and west to recline at the table that Jesus talks about here indicates that salvation is for all people, that you and I, too, can find ourselves at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let it be done for you as you have believed, Jesus says to the centurion. And we're told that the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus wants us and invites us to take him at his word. And faith does exactly that. So what is that word that Jesus is saying to us? What is the main thing that he wants us to hear? Well, there's a clue in verse 16. If you look all the way down there. 
Verse 16 says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, I don't know about you, but on first blush, that last sentence seems an odd way to end this passage. It is not obvious to me, at least, from uh, these healings that Jesus is somehow taking on the illness from each person into himself. I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Green Mile, came out. 10, 15 years ago. It's this film where uh, Tom Hanks is in it and this guy, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, has unfortunately passed away since, but there's this character that this guy, uh, Michael Clark Duncan, plays in this movie, and he seems to have this mysterious ability to heal, but in so healing people, he touches them, and in some way the illness seems to transfer to him. So he, the person had a cough, he seems to sign, kind of touch them, heal them, but he kind of gets this cough. Um, and frankly, that's not really what we seem to see here, right, in this passage. This is not the sort of healing uh, that Jesus is exhibiting. So what does it mean that he took our illnesses and bore our disease? Why is it the close to our passage today? Well, if we return to Isaiah 61, in the year of the Lord's favor, well, of course we would expect to see the healing of our physical bodies as part of Jesus' good news. And in fact, that is what we see. And also, we would expect to see a kind of societal or relational healing, a healing which includes in its scope all the nations. And in fact, that is what we see. But we should also note that there's a promise in that year of the Lord's favor for a healing that goes right to the root of who we are, that includes the bodily life, but is not exhausted by that bodily life. In other words, that goes deeper, that goes to the core of our being. It's the promise for what Isaiah 61 calls the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness, for that perfect covering by which we can stand in the presence of a perfect God and not be consumed. So ultimately, Jesus' healing always includes both body and soul. Now, there's a tension here, I understand. One of the tensions here is that physical healings in this passage are so obvious so public and so visible. But this second sort of healing, this soul healing, because it is inward, can seem so much harder to see, at least with our eyes. But there is a sort of question that lingers, what good is it if your body is in fact healed, but your soul is still at hazard? Jesus himself points us to this. In uh, John 5, Jesus heals a beggar by the pool at Bethsaida. And he finds the man later in the temple. So this is a man who, who couldn't walk, and now he can walk again. But Jesus finds him later and says to him, Go, sin no more. So Jesus himself points to a more fundamental healing which we need, which is the healing for all of our lies, our betrayals, our willful disobedience our effacing of the image of God in each other and in ourselves, our destruction of the creation he's given us, our introduction into his shalom, his peace, our pride to usurp his place. It is the will that does not want to live in the year of the Lord's good pleasure, but the year of Josh Mackin's good pleasure. And for that sort of healing, notice that it would not require just a touch 
or even a mere word, but a life. The life of the Son of God himself poured out for us, for the sins of the world, that we might be healed. This is why I came, Jesus says to Pilate on the eve of his crucifixion, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears, that word again, my voice. So the root of the problem, the illness for which we are in desperate need of a cure, required Jesus Christ to become so near to us, to touch us so intimately, that he had to take on our flesh, and in fact became our sin, touched that deepest and most malignant and most fatal part of us, and made it his own. And so verse 17 reminds us, as Jesus himself so often did, that in the midst of all these miracles and healings, in the midst of all these wonderful signs of God's kingdom and his will come on earth, there would also be the sign of the cross. And to that more difficult, more fundamental, and altogether more costly healing, Jesus gave himself, and it took all he had. So when Jesus stood up in that synagogue and declared the year of the Lord's favor, he knew that in doing so, he was declaring his own death. And I don't mean to cheapen pain or to be glib about the awful power of that sin and death, which has touched all of us in one way or another, and which will find all of us and all of our loved ones one day, perhaps when we're least prepared for it. I don't mean to cheapen any of that when I say that for the believer, the one who takes Jesus at his word, some of these questions here around healing, some of these struggles we have about maybe why God doesn't heal or doesn't seem to be healing, these are really questions for the believer that are a question of timing. Because the year of the Lord has been declared by Jesus. And Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are perishing. And you who take him at his word, who receive him as Savior and Lord, will do likewise. This is one of the great truths encapsulated in the Athanasian Creed, which we read last week on Trinity Sunday, when the Creed says, quote, Jesus, although he be God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. We often think of incarnation as uh, God coming down and taking on flesh. But there is this sense, consider that sense, of what it would mean that his manhood, his flesh, his human body is taken up into God. For what it means is that it is in fact possible, in the words of 1 John, that we will be like him one day. That is, that unity with God, that eternal fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be ours if we take Jesus at his word. Second Peter puts it this way, through the great promises of God, we may become partakers of the divine nature. This is a mystery. But in some way, the resurrected Jesus is a proof of concept, as it were, a great assurance that it is, in fact, possible for human beings, for this flesh and blood, for these perishable bones to take on the imperishable, to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, to enter into that glory which no eye has seen, no ear heard, 
nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us, for those who love him. So if we say yes to Jesus, if we take him at his word, if we say yes to all that he is, all that he has done for us, if we say yes to the gift and to the giver, if we allow in his healing, this is our future hope. The salvation and healing of our bodies and our souls. The hope of glory. Jesus is willing and able to heal. His healing is for all people who take him at his word. But that healing was purchased for us, and it was costly. But hear the good news. I love these words in Luke 12. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Rest in that. Listen to that. Believe that. Eat, as it were. Inwardly digest. Receive Jesus' word that it might be done for you as you have believed. Amen.